Um, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and it's on page 1002, if you have a church Bible. Verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Well, as Libby said, uh, we're going through Mark's Gospel and um, looking at various incidents where people met with Jesus and Jesus met with them. And uh, Mark's Gospel is different to, Ma to Matthew's Gospel and to Luke's Gospel and to John's Gospel, the four historical accounts of the life of Jesus. And they're all just a bit different to each other. They include different details at times um, and they're, they're written differently. Um, it's been said that Mark's Gospel is a sort of tabloid gospel. Um, in social media terms, it's the Twitter, the Snapchat, or the WhatsApp of the Gospels. It's short and it's sharp. Um, the phrase immediately, at once, occurs again and again and again in Mark's Gospel. Um, and Mark's Gospel begins differently to Matthew and to Luke. Uh, and that reading that we had uh, a few moments ago, um, it just goes straight to the heart of the matter. In Matthew's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel... Um, if you know anything about those two Gospels, they start very differently. They start with the family trees of Jesus, one through Mary's line and one through Joseph's line. In the old-fashioned version, it was so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so It's not very interesting. I remember when I was at school, and I once was at school, um, there was a head boy, um, and if you were a head boy, you could choose the reading from the Bible in the assembly on your last day. And uh, this guy called Matthew was a Christian, and um, he wasn't very impressed with our school assemblies. He thought they did a disfavour to the Christian faith, actually turning people against Christianity. And so he stood up on this final day uh, to read the Bible reading with the headmaster standing, sitting behind this enormous oak desk. And Matthew Bennington stood there dressed in a, a gown because the prefects and head boys wore gowns. It was a posh Manchester school. And um, he started reading from Matthew's Gospel, the genealogy. So-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And it started off at sort of S1, where people started to giggle. And then it sort of went in a ripple all the way through the school hall until it reached the sixth form at the back. And at the end, he said, this is the word of the Lord. And we all looked to one another and went, really? And the headmaster just turned to him and said, Bennington, you may leave the stage. And he made history by being the only head boy who was expelled an hour before he left the school. It's genius. 
Um, now that's, that's Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Um, John's gospel starts again very differently. We have that, what's called the prologue. It's often read in carol services. Uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's very poetical, it's very lyrical, it's very beautiful. Mark's gospel, very different. No messing about. Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. That's it. There's no poetry. There's no family tree. It just basically says, this is what it's about. This is who I'm going to tell you about. This is what this book contains. And the same applies to the calling of the first followers of Jesus. In Luke's account of this incident that Christine read for us, it has lots of background. It has lots of context. It has lots of, of the stuff that's going on. Jesus um, is, is teaching by the Sea of Galilee, and he's starting to speak to a huge crowd. The crowd gets so big that actually Jesus needs some way of, of, of speaking to bigger numbers. And he sees uh, Simon fishing, and he says to him, can I use your boat? So Simon says, yes. So Jesus gets in his boat, and they push off from, from the shore a little way off, and, and Jesus uses the acoustics of the water to bounce his words off and to speak to a much bigger group of people. Then we have the miraculous catch of fish with Jesus saying, put your nets on that side of the boat. And Simon saying, we've, made, we've, we've fished, well, I didn't call him mate, I think he calls him teacher. He says, we've, we've fished all night and we've caught nothing. And Jesus says, no, no, put your nets on that side. And they, they throw their nets over on that side, and there's a, there's a huge catch of fish, almost uh, so many fish that it breaks the nets when they, they try and get the, the nets up out of the water. Now again, Mark doesn't have any of that. Mark just simply tells us, Mark chapter 1 and verses 16 to 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, that phrase that occurs again and again, immediately, at once, and then, immediately, and then, at once, occurs again and again during Mark's gospel. At once, they left their nets and followed him. There's no fluff. There's no spraff. It's straight to the point, at once. Without delay, we're then told, when he calls James and John, the sons of Zebedee, verse 20, without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. So what's going on here? Why do these four men immediately follow Jesus? Why do they stop what they're doing? Why do they give up everything immediately and follow Jesus. Ignore 2,000 years of church history. Ignore the fact that you're sitting in a church and the temptation therefore is to spiritualize what is actually going on in this episode. To think, well of course, they would recognize Jesus. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. They would have got up, left everything, and followed him. 
For we too are called to leave everything, to go and to follow Jesus. Well, they hadn't read Mark's gospel. They hadn't read Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel or John's gospel. They hadn't gone through 2,000 years of church history. They weren't tempted, the four of them who followed Jesus that day, to immediately super-spiritualise things. Put yourselves in their position. Put yourselves where they were. Put yourselves going about your everyday business, going about the job that you've perhaps done for years, although there's some speculation that these four, and in fact all of the disciples, are teenagers. And in fact, Simon Peter is probably the oldest one, aged about 20. When you hear that, then maybe it puts in a different type of context, A, some of the things that Simon Peter says, but also some of the things that the disciples do. These are teenagers, these are adolescents. This is why they are what they are. I mean, look at our youth group. <laughs> Steady. But it gives it a different flavor. It gives it a different impression if you think, well, here are 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds being faced by this 30 year old and being called to leave everything. And at once they stop what they're doing, they give up their jobs and they follow this guy called Jesus. And for James and John in particular, it may have been very, very costly indeed. Did you notice that when they leave their father Zebedee, even in Mark's account, we're told something of the background. We're told that they leave their father Zebedee and the hired men. They leave their father Zebedee and the hired men. What does that tell us? That's deliberately put in to let us know that Zebedee didn't just employ his family. Zebedee employed other people to be his fishermen. There's some evidence that in fact Zebedee, or if you like the firm Zebedee and Sons, had the contract to supply the fish to the temple in Jerusalem makes sense of why Caiaphas, the high priest, perhaps recognises, and the other priests recognise Simon, because they're used to seeing him, and they're used to seeing Simon and Andrew and James and John delivering the fish to the temple in Jerusalem. So for, for James and John in particular, this is quite costly, because this is no just one fishing boat. This is a going concern this is a company, this is a family firm, and if they're James and John, they're the people who are going to inherit the family business when Zebedee dies. But they leave what they're doing, they leave their father Zebedee and the hired men, and they go, and they go with Jesus. What's actually going on here? Well, a few years ago, one writer helpfully gave some background to first century Palestine and the relationships that existed between rabbis, Jewish teachers, and their disciples. There's actually a website called followtherabbi.com where the scholar Ray Vanderlaan has, has recorded several videos that he's made in Israel explaining what the context 
of these verses are. You see, what would have happened in the time of Jesus was that if you were a boy between probably six or seven up to about 10 or 11, you would have been instructed in what was called Bet Safer, the house of the book. And during that time, you were told, encouraged, nurtured, forced to learn the first five books of the Bible. You had to learn and to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you learnt the first five books of the Bible by the age of 10 or 11. You'd memorise them. There were no printing presses. There were no iPhones or tablets. You were taught them by rote through hearing them again and again as the rabbi read them out to you, although he probably had learnt them by rote as well. Do you ever wonder why when Jesus is teaching, people seem to know when he says, don't you know the scripture, dot, dot, dot. They knew it by heart. They knew what we would call those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Maybe there was one copy of the manuscripts. Maybe it was kept in the synagogue. Maybe it was in a scroll or in a bunch of scrolls. Remember again in Luke's gospel where he tells us that, that Jesus went to the synagogue and took the scroll and read from Isaiah 61, rolled up the scroll, puts it back into the wall, and then sits down. Because sitting down means that you're ready to teach. To sit down meant that you had something to say. In our culture, you stand up, or if you're tired like me, you sit down. But in Jesus' culture, you sat down. That was a signal to everybody that you had something to say. Jesus puts that scroll back, perhaps in the wall, sits down, and then says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So you're age 10 or 11, you're a boy. Many, most rabbis thought it a complete waste of time to teach girls, so they weren't included. But if you were a boy, you learnt the first five books of the Bible. If you passed that test, you were then admitted, you graduated from Bet Sefer to Bet Talmud, the house of learning. And now between the ages of 10 and 14, you would learn the whole of what we call the Old Testament. You'd begin with Genesis, and you would learn the rest of the 38 books right through to Malachi. 39 books in total in Hebrew. And you would learn it by rote. You would learn it off by heart. And you would learn it again and again and again, probably every day and then if you were age 14 to 15 the best students well they would then approach a particular rabbi they would approach the rabbi and not the other way around the rabbi wouldn't approach the disciple 
the prospective disciple approached the rabbi. And you would ask to be admitted to what is in Hebrew, Bet Midrash, the house of study. It's the same root word that in Islam, schools are still called a madrasa, where again, that way of teaching is still um, used to, to learn things by rote when they learn the Quran. And the student would say to the rabbi, I want to become your disciple. I want to enter into your school. I want to be baptised, because baptism was a sign of entering a rabbi's school and becoming their disciple. I want to enter into your school. I want to become your follower. And the rabbi would then interview the prospective disciple. Again, you see the way that it is. The rabbi would interview the prospective disciple because the disciple had approached the rabbi. And the rabbi would test you on how well you knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. How well you knew the Jewish tradition. How well you knew the prophets. He would quiz you on particular words. He'd test you on particular passages and phrases. And then, and only then, if the rabbi thought that you, the 15, 16 year old male, you, had what it took, then and only then would the rabbi say to you, come follow me. And it was a particular phrase that they used, almost like a sort of technical phrase. For a rabbi to say to a disciple, come follow me, he was saying, I think you've got what it takes. I think you can be like me. I think you can know what I know. I think you can do what I do. But what we see here is something very different. What we see here is a rabbi choosing the disciples. The relationship between a rabbi and the disciple was very close, very intimate. There was a, a saying in first century Palestine, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it meant not just walk in his footsteps, but it meant that your relationship was so close that as he walked, he covered you in his dust. It was that intimate, it was that close, it was that committed, the relationship between the teacher and the learner, between the rabbi and the disciple. So what we're seeing here is something that is at one level the same, but on another level very different. Age 30 was the age when rabbis began their public ministry. That is exactly the age when Jesus begins his public ministry. His cousin, John the Baptist, has just been thrown into prison, and it's after that that he then calls his first disciples. But you see what's happened. On one level it's the same, but on another level it's very different. Because what's happening is the rabbi is calling the disciple, not the disciple identifying the rabbi. And there's a phrase that Mark 
tells us that's significant, which for years, if I'm honest, I just glossed over. Because we're told in Mark chapter 1 and verses 16 to 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And for years I thought, well, they were casting a net. Why? Because they were fishermen. That's what fishermen do. They cast nets. But actually something else is happening. Mark is perhaps telling us something else. He's telling us that they're fishermen. Why is that significant? In telling us that they're fishermen, he's telling us that Simon and Andrew and James and John are not anybody else's disciples. They're not any other rabbi's followers. And so they've gone on with the family business, they've gone on with what they know, they've started fishing. And why weren't they anybody else's disciples? Well, very simply because they weren't good enough. They might have gone to another rabbi, but they'd failed their exam if they had. But the likelihood is that they haven't gone to another rabbi because they know that they're not good enough. They know that they're not clever enough. They know that no other rabbi wanted them. They were, if you like, the not good enoughs. That's why they were fishermen. And that's why Mark tells us that they were fishermen. It's not simply a description of their job. He's telling us something else about them. Simon and Andrew and James and John were fishermen because they weren't disciples. Because no other rabbi wanted them. Because they were the not good enoughs. And this is different. This is unusual. Because here we have a rabbi calling disciples. Rather than disciples picking choosing a rabbi and it's different also because the rabbi is going to people that either other rabbis have rejected and turned down or people who know that they're not good enough to be chosen by any other rabbi three years from now after the death and resurrection of jesus peter and john would stand before the sanhedrin the authorities of the jews in jerusalem and there are two details that are noted in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. When they've begun to explain about who Jesus is, and they try and explain the events of the first day of Pentecost, and they try and explain the coming of the Spirit, and they try and explain what the death and resurrection of Jesus means, the Sanhedrin note two things, and two things only, about Peter and John. In Acts chapter 4 verse 13, they note firstly that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Literally in the Greek, a grammato idioti, uneducated idiots. But the second thing that the Sanhedrin note is simply this. They noted that they had been with Jesus. They noted 
that they had been with Jesus. That for three years they had been covered in the dust of their rabbi. A rabbi who had looked at them and said, unlike any other rabbi, you can do what I do. You can know what I know. You can be like me. And when you realise who that rabbi is, that becomes very, very significant. Because the Son of God is looking at these four fishermen who know that they're not good enough. And he's saying, you can be like me. You can know what I know. You can do what I do. And so very simply, there's two challenges for you and for me this evening. Firstly, a challenge and perhaps an encouragement to recognise that Jesus calls the not good enoughs. He always has, he always does, and he always will. If you feel that you're not good enough for Jesus, if you know that you're not good enough for Jesus, if you know that you're not religious or spiritual enough, you don't know your Bible well enough, you don't pray for long enough, then that's exactly the sort of person that Jesus is looking for. Because he called the not good enoughs. And all the way through church history, he has. I love the story of Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury just now, who tells the story against himself that when he offered himself for ordination in the Church of England, he was told by the then Bishop of Kensington, Welby, there is no future for people like you in the church. I love that. And there he is now, Archbishop of Canterbury, once told by a past bishop, there's no future for people like you in the Church of England. Same, in some ways, was true for me. I was turned down by the Baptists for ordination, quite rightly. I just scraped through the selection process for the Church of England. And even now, you may wonder how. But God always calls the not good enoughs. He always calls people who know that they're not good enough, who feel that they're underqualified, who feel that they're ill-equipped, who feel that they're too sinful, that there's something that they've done or said or thought that could never be forgiven. That's exactly the sort of person that Jesus always calls. And the second thing is just that one phrase that the Sanhedrin noticed about Peter and John. They took note that they had been with Jesus. They took note that they had been with Jesus. As people look at your life this week, as people look at my life this week, will they be able to see that we have spent time with Jesus? The way in which we respond, the way in which we react, the way in which we think, the way in which we speak, 
Will there be something of the character of Jesus? Will the dust of the rabbi be seen in your life and be seen in mine?